Our epistle lesson and sermon text is from the beginning of Romans 8. Give your ear to God's infallible word. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's ask for God's blessing on the reading and preaching and hearing of his word. Father, we do need your blessing, and we pray for it now, that you, by your spirit, would work in us a greater desire to to do what you would have us to do and to believe what you would have us to believe and to long for communion with you more than anything. As we dive into the, the treasures of the gospel again this Lord's Day, open our hearts and our minds to accept it and to go from here doing it. We pray that your spirit would accomplish this for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we've come to perhaps the, the greatest chapter in the Bible. I've been looking forward to Romans 8. Romans 8 is a nice way uh, to... Uh, it, it's a nice chapter to go into after being in Romans 7 for so long, right? Where in Romans 7 we meditated on the, our struggle with indwelling sin and now we get to meditate on the victory that we have over our indwelling sin because of the indwelling spirit. Philip Spainer, a German theologian from the end of the 17th century once said that if the Bible were a ring, the book of Romans would be the precious stone on that ring and Romans chapter 8 would be, quote, the sparkling point of the jewel, end quote. Romans 8, more than any other chapter in Holy Scripture, has been called, as I just called it, the greatest chapter in the Bible. And by the way, if, if you didn't know, there's, there's an opportunity to memorize Romans 8 with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ here. So, several of us are going to try to memorize Romans 8 in the coming weeks and months. Before we begin our journey through this precious jewel, let's locate it on the, on the Romans map. How does, how does chapter 8 fit? How does it continue Paul's argument in this letter? How does it, why does it follow chapters 1 through 7? Well, beginning in chapter 6, Paul has been explaining the doctrine of sanctification. That's a, I know that's a word maybe, maybe you haven't heard many times before, but sanctification is a biblical word. It's, it's the work of God in a person after the person has been born again. Sanctification is the lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus. If, if you're a Christian, then right when God saved you, right when he regenerated you, gave you a new heart, a new spirit, gave you the new birth, he immediately began the process of making you think and talk and behave more like Christ, more like your Savior. And this process of your sanctification Sanctification literally just means becoming 
holier, being holier, becoming holier. This process of your sanctification will continue until you die or the Lord returns. Sanctification began right when you were saved and it will end when you go to heaven. It will be completed, perfected then. Romans 6 to 8 explains the doctrine of sanctification. And chapter 8 is the crowning chapter in this larger section of Scripture. Romans 6 told us of our vital union with Christ, our connection with Christ. Uh, We've been crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, and raised with Christ, Paul said. And And then in Romans 7, he described our ongoing struggle with indwelling sin, the battles that we fight, some of which we lose as we let sin gain a grip, get a foothold. And now Romans 8 describes our ongoing victory over sin by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And what sticks out most about Romans 8 is the prominence of one of the persons of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. Paul mentions the Spirit no less than 19 times in the first 27 verses. No other chapter in the New Testament mentions the Spirit as much as Romans chapter 8. So this is, you could call us the Holy Spirit chapter. I remember for, for seminary, I think it was, I, had, I, I was assigned a book, a really great book on the Holy Spirit by Sinclair Ferguson. And it, it struck me when I read that book how often he kept going back to Romans 8 because there's so much here about the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, in the Christian's life. Now, if you have your Bible open, you can go with me on a quick tour to give you sort of a preview. We're going on a quick tour of the references to the Holy Spirit in Romans 8. In verse 2, Paul describes the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of life. We just read that. The Spirit of life. The Spirit who brings life, gives life. The Spirit animates Christian. The new birth is accomplished by the Spirit. The new birth is new life. So it's the Spirit. He is the Spirit of life. In verse 4, we're to walk according to the Spirit. Another another place, Paul says, in step with the Spirit. In verse 5, we are to live according to the Spirit and set our minds on things of the Spirit. Verse 9 says that believers are in the Spirit and the Spirit lives in them. So he, he is an indwelling Spirit. And if anyone does not have the Spirit, Paul says, they don't belong to Christ. In verse 10, Paul says, whereas sin brings death, the Spirit brings life. In verse 11, Paul says that the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit, the same person, same eternal person who lives in you. And this Spirit will also give life to your mortal bodies one day. He will raise you from the dead and give you a body like that of, of Christ Jesus, like the body Jesus has. In verse 13, it's, the, it's, the, it's by the Spirit that you put to death the deeds of the body and live as faithful sons of God. Verse 14 says that true sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. Not by the flesh, but by the Spirit of God into holiness. In verse 15, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Adoption. And in verse 16, the very next verse, the Spirit of Adoption, quote, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. End quote. How do you know Jesus won't tell you, depart from me, I never knew you? It's because the Holy Spirit indwells you and testifies to your spirit that you're a child of God, that God is your father because you've been born of God, born again of God. In verse 23, we have the first fruits of the spirit, Paul says. And the first fruits of the spirit cause us to long and even groan for our future glorification when our bodies will be redeemed and we will be free from sin and suffering completely. We, we groan and long for that day. And 
Later, he says that the Spirit even groans with us. In verses 26 and 27, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. He groans alongside us and even prays for us since we don't know what to pray for. So those are some of the the ministries of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. The first half of Romans 8 in particular is all about the work of the Holy Spirit in, in, in sanctifying and growing believers. And the way the only way that you can live as God has called you to live is by the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't have, there's no other resource that can accomplish it. You don't have it within, and there's nothing outside of you other than God himself. You can't do it in your own strength, drawing on your own resources, and so God has given you himself even taking up residence inside of you. As we narrow in on today's text, verses 1 to 4, we see that salvation is accomplished for us by all three persons of of the Godhead. The gospel is the work of the entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I tried to draw this out in the outline that came with the bulletin. In verse 1, Paul states the fact of the gospel. The gospel truth is that sinners who put their faith in Christ are justified. That that means they're declared to be righteous in God's sight. Not because they actually are righteous in their behavior, but because they're declared to be righteous by virtue of being in union with Christ, connected to Christ, having faith in Christ. And so because they're in Christ, they're no longer under God's condemnation. In verse 3, Paul takes us down down all the way to the foundation of the gospel. The reason Christians are not under God's condemnation, the reason we're not under his condemning wrath anymore, is that the Father has already condemned our sin in the flesh of Jesus when he died on the cross. It's It's not that he just sort of as I've said, swept our sins under the rug or turned a blind eye or just decided to forget about them. No, they had to be dealt with. They had to be judged. They had to be condemned. But verse 3 says that the Father condemned our sin, your sin, in the flesh of Jesus on the cross. And then in verses 2 and 4, Paul envisions the fruit of the gospel the fruit of the gospel, which is the work of the indwelling spirit. True believers have been set free from the power of sin by the spirit in order to fulfill the law by the power of of the same spirit. And what he means by fulfill the law there is simply obey God. Do what God requires. Be faithful to God. Living in obedience, the obedience of faith, Paul calls it at the beginning and end of this letter. Now today we're only going to cover the first two points. The, the, the first two points on your outline. So verse, essentially verse 1 and verse 3. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll, we'll come back and we'll tie it all together with the third point and see how the, the paragraph holds together. Today we're just going to focus on the gospel, that there is no condemnation in Christ. So first, the fact of the gospel. Sinners are declared righteous. They are justified in Christ. Verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now the first thing we need to do here, especially if I need to do for those of you who who have your Bible open and and if you're not using the King James, the New King James version, the first thing we need to wrestle with is the second half of verse 1 because it doesn't appear in several translations. Maybe some of you can see that. For example, very good translations like the ESV or the NASB, others, NIV, Christian Standard Bible, they only include the first half 
of verse 1. Now, those, those translation committees would say, no, we included the whole verse. I'm saying they only included the first half. Uh, you know, they do this because some of our Greek manuscripts only include the first half of verse 1. And, and those translation committees uh, that, that put those translations together, they believe that those manuscripts that only include the first half, what I'm calling the first half, are the most accurate, right? Uh, they believe that the second half of verse 1 was added by someone other than Paul. And, and this is a very common thing in our manuscripts. Not, every, not all of the 5,000-plus manuscripts that we have are identical. Some of the, sometimes the scribes added or took away, sometimes on purpose, sometimes by accident. There's a, a lot of discussions about a lot of different places in our text, and this is one of them where the manuscripts are different. However, the overwhelming majority of the manuscripts that we have do include the second half of verse 1, and I'm convinced that Paul himself penned it, that he wrote it. In any case, it, it doesn't make a huge difference. These are important discussions that, that I'm glad that, that, that scholars are having, and the church has been discussing this through the ages. It's, they're, they're good discussions to have because we want to know what God says. We want to know what is inspired and what's not, right? Uh, but sometimes those decisions are not uh, as easy. 98% of the time, uh, I would say even 99% of the time, I don't think there's really much question, but there are a few places like this one. But it doesn't make a huge difference. Uh, there are no doctrines that, that, that hinge on this one or any of the other instances where this happens. Uh, no no. Nothing, if the second half of verse 1 is not original, if Paul didn't write it, uh, it doesn't matter a whole lot. In fact, Paul repeats the second half of verse 1 in the second half of verse 4, so we can't get away from the phrase. Uh, you'll notice in, in my translation on the handout that the end of verse 1 and the end of verse 4 are identical, and no one doubts that the end of verse 4 is original, that Paul wrote it. So no matter which manuscripts or translation you use, you've got to reckon with the phrase, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And I believe it shows up twice here that Paul emphasizes it by putting it in verse 1 and verse 4. Well, verse 1 begins with therefore, and this therefore ultimately reaches all the way back to the beginning of the letter and pulls forward all of chapters 1 through 7. The theme of Romans, remember it was stated in the first chapter, the 16th and 17th verse, is that God gives his own righteousness to every person who puts their faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Because this is true, Paul says, there is now no condemnation, zero condemnation, absolutely no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. The, the word I'm saying, I'm, I'm emphasizing it here because the word no should be underlined and in, emboldened in, in, in for emphasis. Paul, Paul not only uses an emphatic Greek word that means no, like a, a strong word for, for no, but he also puts this word no right at the beginning of the sentence, which is how Greek writers would, would lay emphasis on a, on a word or an idea. They didn't, th they didn't do word order the way we do word order in English. You know, we, we have to be very careful about our word order because things can mean different things. Well, they had different grammar, and so they were able to put things, put words in different parts of the sentence and still mean the same thing. And here, the, the very first word of Romans chapter 8 is an emphatic no absolutely no condemnation is there now for those who are in Christ Jesus if, if we want to kind of feel the word order in the Greek. Those who are in Christ Jesus can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they will not be condemned when they stand before God on judgment day. And so when you read a text like this, it's good to ask, are you, are you in Christ Jesus? through faith in his blood? Have you been united to Christ through a living and active and obedient faith? 
Do you trust him and follow him? Do you belong to him? Are you walking in his spirit? And, and, and here's how you know. Look at the second half of verse 1. Or the second half of verse 4, if you don't believe me. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's the identifying, that's the identifier for those in the first half. So what's it mean to, to, to be in Christ Jesus and to have no condemnation? What's that look like? Well, it's those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who are in Christ Jesus are those who no longer walk according to the flesh, in the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, you can identify those who are in Christ Jesus by their holiness, not, not their perfection, that would be no one, but by their holiness. Remember the book of Hebrews says that without holiness, no one, you won't see God. If there's no whole, if, if, if the Spirit is not working holiness into you, then, it, then that's evidence that you have not actually been saved. They're the ones, the, those who are in Christ Jesus, you'll know them by their holiness because they're the ones putting to death the deeds of the flesh and producing the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. It's those people and those people only who are no longer un, under condemnation. We've got to be clear here. It's not your holiness that saves you or that justifies you. God doesn't look at your holiness and say, okay, that person... I'm going to declare that person righteous now because they're, they're starting to grow in holiness. They're starting to kill sin. No, that, that's not how it works at all. That would be salvation by works, justification by works. And that's not how we're saved. We're saved by faith alone. Apart from anything that we've ever done, we contribute nothing to our salvation, to our justification. But when you are justified, you do grow in holiness. They come together. You can't be walking in the flesh and expect to escape God's condemnation. And so already in verse 1, Paul establishes that sanctification always follows justification. Sanctification is the, the necessary fruit of justification. You can't claim to be saved unless you are also being sanctified. If you want to be able to say that you've been freed from sin's penalty, that you've been rescued from the fire of hell, from eternal damnation, you must also be able to say that you're in the process of being freed from sin's dominating power. It's stranglehold on you. You're being freed from it by the power of the Spirit. Those two realities go together. And we separate them to our own peril, our own demise, our own destruction if we're not careful. You never have salvation without sanctification, just as you never have sanctification apart from salvation. So if you're not in Christ, if you're not, if you're not walking in the Spirit, if you're still in the flesh, then Romans 8.1 provides no comfort to you because it tells you that you're still under the condemnation of God. And if you die in that state, you'll be damned forever and sentenced to hell. That's what condemnation is. That's what the word, the verb, and the noun in this passage is referring to. That's the condemnation. It's where you will experience God's unending anger and wrath. But if you are in Christ Jesus... If you are walking in his spirit rather than in the flesh, if you've been rescued, then Romans 8.1 is one of the most comforting and assuring verses in the Bible for you. It means there's no longer a sentence of, of eternal death hanging over your head, of, of damnation weighing on you. No longer a noose around your neck waiting to end it all. Forever. The sentence of death and damnation was put on Jesus, on Christ. The noose was put around his neck. He's already endured your death, your damnation, your condemnation, your hell. The penalty for your sins has been paid in full. 
your official status in the courtroom of heaven, and everybody knows this, the angels know this, is absolutely not condemned. Absolutely no condemnation. And this status is reserved exclusively for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not true of everyone. There are two and only two categories of people. And there will be two and only two categories of people forever. Those who are not under God's condemnation because they're in Christ. And those who are under condemnation because they're not in Christ. They're still in their sin and unforgiven. To be in Christ Jesus means you have been united to Jesus. It means you have a union and ongoing communion with the Savior. It means the Holy Spirit has put you in Christ. The Holy Spirit has placed you in Christ. And it means that Christ has come to live inside of you along with the Spirit and the Father. You're indwelt by the entire Trinity. And here's the really great news. It means that the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been credited to you, credited to your account, your spiritual bank account, as it were. So think of it. The righteousness of Jesus, which is the righteousness of God, belongs to you no less than it belongs to Jesus. Do you believe that? If you're in Christ, then Christ himself would have to be condemned in order for you to be condemned. God would have to cast Jesus into hell before he could cast you into hell because you are in Christ Jesus. And his righteousness is your righteousness. Just as much yours as it is his. He's truly given it to you. He truly shares it with you. Ephesians 2.6 says that you as a believer are already seated in Christ, with Christ, in heaven. So because he's there, you're there. Heaven is just as certain for you as it is for Jesus. And it's certain for Jesus. Where he is, you are. Already even. Not just in the future, but even now. What he has, you have. Even now. All the eternal spiritual blessings that Jesus earned have been given to you now. Your no condemnation status is irreversible because the risen Christ's no condemnation status is irreversible. And you are one with that risen Christ. And we can think of a couple of implications of this. First, your no condemnation status fuels personal holiness. That's, that's where the, the power, the fuel, the motivation comes from, what God has done for you. And it gets you off of the, the performance treadmill of trying to earn God's favor, do things so that God will be happy, happy with you and he won't be mad at you anymore. It gets you off of that whole track, that whole way of thinking and living. You're already, you've already been eternally accepted in Christ. It's a done deal. You don't have to worry about gaining God's approval anymore. It was a gift that was given to you in spite of your sin. Before you had done anything to earn it. And you've really never done anything to earn it anyway. You can't do anything to earn it. And so, knowing that, now you can rest in the gift of God's free, absolutely free grace. You can bask in the deep love of God for you that is in Christ Jesus, as Paul's going to say later in Romans 8. You can recline in the Father's saving arms, in his bosom. And as you do, the abundant mercy of God will motivate you to live a life of gratitude and holiness. That's where it comes from. Not by trying really, really hard but by resting in God's grace and love and mercy and power. Your, your no condemnation status also fuels personal evangelism. It ought to. People need to know that if they're not in Christ, 
they're under condemnation. Again, it's, it's one of the two. J they're under condemnation, just as you were before you were in Christ. So we mustn't put so much emphasis or maybe sole emphasis on God's love and mercy that we fail to tell, to tell unbelievers of the wrath of God to come. We're only giving, giving them part of the story, part of the good news if we leave that out. And so uh, sometimes we put so much cream and sugar in the coffee that it's no longer truly coffee. And sometimes we talk so much about the acceptance of God without mentioning the judgment of God, without mentioning sin and the curse and the penalty that we're saved from, that it's no longer the true gospel. The good news is only good news in light of the bad news, right? And, and the bad news is that we, everyone who's ever been born of, of, of a woman besides Jesus, everyone is by nature a child of wrath, a son of condemnation. That's, that's what was coming to every person by virtue of being born into this world. People need to know that they must flee the wrath to come and they must flee to Christ to escape God's condemning wrath, which is real and eternal. If it's true that they're under God's condemnation, they need to know, and how will they know unless someone tells them? So the fact of the gospel is that sinners are justified in Christ. They're no longer under condemnation. But how is your justification before God possible? It, it seems too good to be true. What, what's the basis of your no condemnation status? I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of sin right, that you have that, that needs to be dealt with before, you, before you're not condemned before God. Well, in verse 3, Paul lays the foundation of the gospel. He writes, For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, even as a sin offering. He condemned sin in the flesh. So the foundation of the gospel is that sin has been condemned by the Father. Paul starts off in verse 3 talking about what the law was powerless to do, unable to do. Remember, the law in this passage, sometimes Paul uses the word law to just refer to a principle, you know, like the law of sin and death, or the law at work within me in Romans 7. But when he's here, in most places, when he refers to the laws as commandments or something that, that is required of, he, he, of us, he's referring to God's moral law, God's holy requirements, his righteous ordinances, which are revealed to us in Scripture. They were there before the law of Moses came down. God, God had standards. God was righteous. And he had right, holy character but he revealed to us his standards in his word by, by giving us the law, giving us revelation of his law. And God's law is what every human being is required to do. And what Paul's saying here is that the law has the ability to tell us what we ought to do, but not the ability, not the power to... Do it. It doesn't give us the power to do it, which is why we need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us keep God's law. Now, Paul isn't saying that the law of God is, is somehow deficient, you know, that it's not doing what it, what it should do, it's failing in some way, that it, that it lacks power in its teaching. No, the, the, God's word is strong, it's living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, it, it, it slices us, you know, it, it cuts us up. And it, Paul says in Hebrews 4, penetrating us all the way to the separation of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. 
it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. That's, that's what the word of God can do and does do. So the law, the law does exactly what it's designed to do, but it can't produce, it's, it wasn't designed to produce righteousness in us. And it can't do it because our flesh, our sinful nature is too weak, too depraved, too wretched, too far gone. And so really what Paul's doing is laying the blame on sin, on, on our deficiency, on our weakness. We, when, when the law comes to us and our sinful natures, we can't do it and become righteous. It actually just highlights our unrighteousness and inflames our sin even more. And that's our fault, not the law's part. But the law is no savior. God is. And when it had become abundantly clear that no one would ever be able to save himself or herself by keeping the commandments what did God do? In the fullness of time, when it was abundantly clear, it had become clear over and over again, every generation, every person, no one ever even came close. It became, when it had become clear, in the fullness of time, God stepped in. He intervened in history and sent humanity a Savior, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, Paul says. Notice Paul doesn't say that Jesus came in sinful flesh. No, Paul says that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he's, he's being careful with his wording here. And he's, and he's wording it perfectly to, to get at all of the realities of the incarnation, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is fully man and fully God. One of the, one of the theological fads uh, of the last couple of centuries is the belief, the assertion that Paul Paul didn't think that Jesus was born of a virgin. And so there's some scholars who want to say that that was only some of the biblical authors thought that, but not all the gospel writers knew or thought that. And, and Paul also didn't believe, he didn't believe Jesus was sinless, right? Um, he didn't believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. I mean, he was realistic. This was a man. He, he was the Messiah, but there's no evidence in Paul. Uh, it, that's bunk on a, in a on a lot of different levels, but just in this verse, the word likeness disproves all that and really in one word, in one sentence. The word likeness accomplishes two things here. It, it, the word means identity. It, 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 it's, identify, it's used to identify very, very closely two things, and that's, what, that's one of the things Paul's doing here. So it, it affirms that Jesus is fully human. Excuse me. It, it affirms that Jesus is fully human, and yet also at the same time indicates that he's unique. If he had taken out the word likeness, only the humanity would have been communicated, but not the uniqueness, not the sinlessness. He took on sinful human flesh and yet remained sinless in the process. He entered fully into our humanity without participating in our sin. Remember, sin is not intrinsic to human nature. Man was not made sinful <clears throat> and so Jesus is fully human without being sinful he took on our human nature without taking on our sinful nature <clears throat> and here's Paul here Paul's expressing the doctrine of the incarnation which is that God the son entered into humanity stepped into our skin stepped into our sinfulness without being tainted by our sinfulness. Jesus is unique in that he's the only person in existence. This is not true of the Father or the Spirit or of any other, any, uh, any human being. Only person in existence who's completely God and completely human, completely man. He's the only person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. The divine nature of Jesus has existed for all eternity. The Son of God was not created. He didn't come into being. But his human nature did come into being. In Mary's womb, his human nature is like man's nature before the fall in that it is not corrupted by sin. And yet at the same time, the flesh and blood, and this is another point that Paul makes in this compact sentence. At the same time, the flesh and blood that the Son of God took upon himself 
was not free from the consequences of sin. And so in that way, he was not like Adam, not like the first man. He, he was susceptible to pain and suffering and sickness and even death. So in the likeness of sinful flesh means simply that he took on our nature. He took on a nature just like ours, including a fallen body. We want to say fallen body, body that's effect, that has the full effects of, of, of the fall a body that groaned because it was vulnerable to all of those downstream effects of sin. And yet he was sinless. And, and the end of verse 3 tells us why God sent Jesus into this, into this sin-infested world in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why did he do it? He did it to become a sin offering. And, and that's one of the deficiencies of the, of the New King James translation. I think it just says... For sin, I can't remember now, um, but the, 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 it's a phrase there that I think it's 44 out of 45 times it's used in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It, it simply refers to the sin, uh, the sin offering. So it's the exact phrase that Paul's using here to talk about a sacrifice, an offering for an atoning sacrifice. And so we need to make sure we translate this as as sin offering. Christ came to deal head on with our sin, not only to pardon us from sin, not only to, to free us from sin's condemnation, but also to free us from sin's stranglehold, from sin's power, from sin's reign, its domination of us, to enable us to live by the Spirit instead of the flesh. And, and that's what we're going to talk about more next week. That, that, fi that final purpose in this passage is sanctification, the work of the Spirit. But in sending His Son, God made provision for both our justification and our sanctification. In sending Jesus, the Father made it possible for us to be right with God, and He made it possible for us to kill our sinful habits and behaviors more and become an idols and become more like Jesus every day. He made provision for both, and he always gives both at the same time. When he gives one, he gives the other. And the focus of verse 3, though, is our justification. So again, we'll look at sanctification more next week and in the coming weeks. The focus of, in verse 3 and verse 1 is on our righteous standing before God because that's where it begins. That's, that's actually where sanctification begins. Initial sanctification occurs at the same time that we're justified. It's not the same thing, right? And there's, there's, a, there's a prior, logical priority to justification. It comes first, but at that moment, sanctification begins, the process of becoming holy. And so Paul, at the beginning, he, he, he lays that foundation for us of sanctification. It all begins in, at the moment of union with Christ. The sacrificial death of the Son was the means by which our sin was condemned. At the cross of Christ and in the flesh of Christ, every one of your sins was condemned by God the Father. God, God poured it all out on Jesus. Jesus took upon himself the punishment that you and I deserve for violating God's law multiple times per day. So do you see then how verse 3 correlates with verse 1? Both verses contain this idea of damnation, condemnation. And verse 3 explains how your no condemnation status is possible. Verse 3 explains why sin has no claim on those who are in Christ. The reason is that on the cross... Christ bore God's condemnation against your sin. He received the full punishment, the full wrath. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for us because there was condemnation for sin on the cross. There's no condemnation for you because there was condemnation against your sin on the cross. This is the gospel. 
This is the, the essence of our faith. This is the, this is the message, the foundational message of the Bible. This is the reason we're here today. That's why we gathered. Romans 8, 1, and 3. We were once under God's wrath because of our sin, but God rescued us from his, his own condemnation by condemning Jesus, his son, instead. This is the news. This is the good news that we proclaim to the world. This is what we have to offer the world. The, the message that we have to offer the world. It's, it's the good news that we speak to one another. And that's why I, I'm always encouraging you all to be talking about these things with one another because the more we're talking about it with our brothers and sisters, the more it's going to spill out as we are filled up with it. It'll spill out into the world. It's what we share with our neighbors. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is condemnation for those outside of Christ Jesus. But there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus has already been condemned. If you're a believer, God condemned your sin in Christ's flesh. Now you're officially and eternally not guilty, not condemned. So as, as we're meditating on this amazing grace, this wonderful news, I got to ask you what I ask myself oftentimes. Do you believe this? Do you, do you really believe this? more than just being able to answer correctly on an exam or to say the right things and put on the spot, do you believe it all the way down? Are you convinced of this? Is this the defining reality in your, in your life? Is it possible that even your sins and all of them were fully paid for, fully cursed, fully condemned on a cross on a hill just outside of Jerusalem in A.D. 30. In the spring of A.D. 30. Is this too good to be true? Too good for you to believe it? Is it really possible that a wretch like you, a wretch like me, could be under no condemnation? Both now and for all eternity. It's never... Irreversible. Is that possible? It's possible and it's absolutely true for those in Christ Jesus. For those who are walking in the Spirit. This means you're under no condemnation for the secret longings that linger in your heart that nobody else knows about. Or at least that you think nobody else knows about. And maybe that have recently gripped you. You're under no condemnation for indulging in your sinful passions, the ones that you indulged in, even this week, perhaps. You're under no condemnation for failing your children, for being harsh with them, for exasperating them, for not being interested in them when they needed you, for belittling them, for not being sensitive to their needs, for not discipling them as you ought, for not sending them out of your house well-equipped. You're under no condemnation for failing to reflect the Father's love to your kids. You're under no condemnation for failing to love your wife, for not living considerately with her, for being unkind and inattentive to her. You're under no condemnation for failing to love your husband, for not submitting to him this week, for nagging him instead of helping him. Christian, you're under no condemnation even for paying homage to those to the scads of idols in your heart. For loving comfort more than God. For seeking your glory more than Christ. For being whiny most of the week, perhaps, instead of being grateful. For looking to your own interests instead of the interests of others. For loving yourself far more than you love God or anyone else, for that matter. You're under no condemnation for being cold toward God last week for lying to protect or maybe advance your reputation for being ashamed to represent Christ boldly in a situation or two at work 
for cheating your boss out of time or other resources, for using your tongue to hurt someone's reputation, for wishing something bad would happen to someone, for wishing something good had not happened to someone, for wishing someone was dead. And, and I haven't even touched, I haven't even scraped the surface, right? This is not even the tip of the iceberg of your sin and my sin. We could talk about the open grave that is your mouth and mine, as Paul calls it. But fellow believer, you're under no condemnation for the oceans and mountains of sin that the devil regularly tries to throw in your face so that you're consumed with guilt, paralyzed by guilt, and so that you're deceived by lies about your status before God. If you're in Christ Jesus, if you're walking not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, you're not under any condemnation for anything you've ever done or ever will do. You've been forgiven of every, everything because it was all nailed to the cross. It was all pinned on Jesus. All of your sin was placed on Christ and condemned there once and for all. Believe this and know that you are at peace with God. Let's pray. Oh God, our hearts are full of gratitude for this good news. We praise you for making a way for us to be right with you, for making a way for us to escape your eternal condemnation. Oh God, Increase our gratitude, increase our love for you, increase our desire to walk in the spirit you've given to us for the glory of Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.